1: Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy
2: these conversations.
0: We're
1: going to start with a short video message from someone who could not be here because he had a conflict. And then we will go into the panel. And by then, presumably, Ivan Penn will have arrived. Okay, let's show it.
2: Thank you very much. And let me thank uh, Director Singh for, uh, for the invitation to Southern California University. Thank you very much. The Wrigley Center for uh, Environmental Studies and, and the Center for the Political Future. This conference on climate change is important, and I'm glad that I have couple of comments, not only to thank you for attending, but to welcome you. Right now, you see the administration and others in Congress uh, attempt to walk this tight The reality of climate change and the climate crisis increases, and so the focus needs to be on transition, the focus needs to be on sustainability, and the focus needs to be on equity. But we see that we're confronting some pushback, and that pushback is intense. It is about denial to some extent, but not to the degree that it was. It is about avoidance, not dealing with the issue at all, and somehow it'll magically go away. And the other one is um, delay, And in what you see its prominence in public policy, to delay decisions. And the latest being this type rule, uh, that we need energy independence, that we need energy security, and that we must do all we can to deregulate and drill and extract from wherever we can on public lands and private lands as a means to reach energy independence and deal with the cost of fuel and deal with the terror in, Euro- in, in Ukraine by Russia. Those become the mantras now of the opposition to delay. Uh, you know, and, and the fact re- remains that science and fact based uh, studies and information, we don't need any more of those. There are volumes upon volumes to talk about the consequences, the projections, and all rooted in science and fact. So, you know, that's why you don't hear too much debate about climate change and its reality, because it's already a proven fact. What has yet, what, what science and, and, and fact-based studies are doing now is detailing the consequences of not doing anything about climate, the disasters. The hardships on lives, regions, homes, economies around the globe and in our communities. So, where do we go from here at this very critical juncture where the transition away from fossil fuel dependency needs to happen? A measured, pragmatic, and accelerated process of transition to get us onto clean and just energy and away from the corrupting, not only environmentally, but politically, I might add, influence of fossil fuel and that industry. So where are we now? I think the challenge, building energy for cl- for change, and dealing with this climate crisis, as this theme is, I think the, the concentration now is not an academic exercise or a research project. This is about communicating and motivating people, the public, And in our instance, here in the United States of America, to motivate and to have a narrative that communicates to people and that motivates them to begin to pressure their elected officials to align the climate policy with the reality of the climate crisis. Not to delay, not to stall, not to avoid, but to go forward. And I think that's the juncture that we're in. So this conference is opportune to be able to talk about where we're going but also understand that the underpinning to what happens in the next six months to a year will be, the underpinning will be how we communicate and how we motivate the American people. That's going to be key and your efforts in that end, your discussions and your conversations today will lead us in that direction. The commitment has to be what the commitment has always been. That climate change is real, that the transition has to happen, and that transition has to be just and equitable. That's the commitment I have, I'm assuming, and I know that that's the commitment many of you have now, is taking that commitment and making our neighbors understand that commitment, and with that understanding, motivate them to help us. Thank you very much, and it's been a pleasure, and have a good conference.
1: I'm going to come back to that tape from that member of Congress and my first question, uh, because I think it raises a very uh, uh, intriguing possibility that's becoming very real right now. So we're going to spend some time on politics as well as energy, and let me introduce the panel. One One of the folks isn't here yet, but when he comes in, they'll have a seat down at the end, uh, and they'll put him in. Ted Bardicke is the CEO of Clean Power Alliance, a locally operated electricity provider for 32 communities and approximately 1 million customers across Los Angeles and Ventura counties. Before that, he was director of infrastructure for the city of Los Angeles and deputy director of Mayor Garcetti's sustainability office. Ara Vasquez is the chair of the Climate Action Committee with the Los Angeles chapter of the Sierra Club. Uh, she is a former commissioner of the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. Tough job that I wouldn't want. She <laughs> did great. <laughs> Through her firm, Vasquez Solutions, she successfully pushed for a law that requires utilities to produce 50% of their electricity from clean energy sources by 2030 and to reduce greenhouse gas levels to 40% below 1990 levels. Jason Rondu is the director of resource planning, development, and programs at the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power where he oversees, and I'll tell you this list is amazing, sounds like you oversee everything, the engineering of stations, integrated resource planning, utility scale, renewable and energy storage procurement, as well as distributed energy resource planning and implementation. That's a pretty big brief. He previously led the LA100 study which identified the major investments required to reliably and cost effectively transition the Department of Water and Power to 100% renewable energy. Uh, our final panelist, who I think will be here in a few minutes, is Ivan Penn, energy correspondent for the New York Times who covers alternative energy. Before coming to the Times in 2018, he covered utility and energy issues for nearly eight years at the Tampa Bay Times and then the Los Angeles Times. Uh, I'm gonna start with broader question that was raised in that video from Representative Gryava, I never say it right, I apologize. Gryava? I oh, yes, I got it, okay. Who wanted to be with us today but had a conflict. And it may be an unpopular question. Given what's happened in Ukraine and with the price of gasoline, should we or will we have to modify climate goals for the short term? And will public opinion demand that we do so in order to produce more oil and gas Not only for the U.S., but for our European allies as they seek to replace Russian oil and gas. Who wants to start off with that? Anyone? I mean, I think this is a very real possibility you're going to see a lot of pressure to do this. Ivan, welcome. (laughs) Hey, Ivan. Question is, are we going to be under pressure now? Are we going to be under pressure given what's happened in Ukraine, given gas prices? Are we going to be under pressure to modify climate change goals for a while. So we drill more, uh, produce more natural gas, uh, both for our own needs and to free Europe from being a hostage of Russian oil and gas. Who wants to
3: start? Uh, I'll start. So um, one of the terrible things about the energy business, but in this case, maybe one of the great things about the energy business is it's very capital intensive and it moves very slowly. Utilities take a long time to change. The energy business takes a long time to change. And a lot of what has been put in motion over the past several years um, in terms of goals and then the capital deployment that is needed to to reach those goals can't be reversed. Um, you can see stuff on the margins, but the stuff on the margins doesn't impact. You know, you saw... The release of, you know, millions of gallons from the strategic petroleum reserve, right? That's a real short term thing. It didn't make a dent in, in what happened with prices. To build LNG plants for, the, t- to take natural gas to Europe, um, you know, from the East Coast or from, from the Gulf Coast, um, is, you know, those are five years and billions and billions of dollars. So I think what we see is a, is a, is a blip. Now the blip, can have some long-term impacts if um, what it does is it stalls any congressional action to um, speed us up. But I don't think the current moment is going to slow us
1: down. So what are the Europeans supposed to do uh, as they? your Germans have said they're going to stop buying Russian oil and they want to get off Russian gas? What are they supposed to do if we can't make up the difference? Anybody? I mean, look, so let, let's say you're Joe Biden. You're sitting there in the White House. The Republicans are saying the big problem with gas prices is you're anti oil and gas. Uh, the big problem with Europe's situation is that we don't have the resources to share with them. And so Ukraine's going to be subject or or Western Europe's going to be subject and our NATO allies are going to be subject to blackmail for a long time. How do you deal with that?
4: I want to return to, I want to return to the uh, concept of energy democracy or energy independence. Because now we're closer to energy independence more than ever, specifically here in Los Angeles. And when you look at uh, oil prices and cars, you know in California, there's a huge um, movement around bringing more EV infrastructure and also electrical vehicles and making them accessible to everyone. But how are we going to power them? You know, how are we going to how are we going to make sure that also All the other people that cannot afford uh, an electric vehicle can afford it so that we can all participate. So I think it's important to remember that we have been having the solutions and we have been asking for energy independence for a really long time, especially climate justice communities that are most burdened by pollution and by climate change. We have been asking to give them also solar and batteries and make microgrids in their communities that can make them independent. And this is not just good for them. It's also good for the private sector. It, it brings jobs and it's also very, it, it, it's very labor intensive. And these are not jobs that we can outsource to China. This is not somebody else that can do it in the East Coast. We have to do them locally. So as we look at energy independence and also energy democracy, we can revitalize our economy and put people back to work and help businesses thrive and also stop our reliance on foreign you know, oil and gas.
5: Yeah, I would just quickly add, uh, re- really similar to the comments on EVs, I think we all um, know that you know what's happened with gas prices, and, and we're very fortunate, many of us, to have choices to get an electric vehicle. But what we realize now is that many folks don't have that choice because one, they can't afford an electric vehicle or two, there's no ability to get the charging infrastructure to where they would need to charge it, whether it's multifamily or whether it's in disadvantaged communities. So one thing that this is an opportunity for us is to reaffirm that to do a successful decarbonization uh, effort, it needs to be done equitably, and it's not being done equitably right now, and we're not getting enough charging infrastructure into communities that need it, and we're not doing enough, and when I say we, I mean you know the, the broader we, um, to, to incentivize and to make uh, electric vehicles affordable. I think the other thing that I'll say to that is um, – We, at a local level, have invested a lot of time in doing very rigorous planning to figure out not just setting a goal to get to 100% renewable energy, but figuring out all the major investments that we need to make. And that takes time. That takes a lot of analysis, and we partnered with the federal government to bring in top scientists to help us do that. What that did is it showed us that a lot of the near-term things that we need to do um, are pretty straightforward and they're not that surprising. And we know that in the next less than the next 10 years, we can go from a little over 50% carbon free to actually 97% carbon free. So we know in a very short term, we can dramatically reduce our natural gas reliance. And what that does is it not only helps uh, our, our, us locally, but it sets an example for the rest of the, the state and the rest of the country. And just in the last couple of months, We've had two Eastern European countries send delegates to Los Angeles to meet with us to understand what our planning process was. So, you know, to the degree that that helps in the short run, you know, we don't know. But what we do know is that the more action that we take now and the more that we have our sights set on a very equitable uh, transition, we can actually play a, a pretty significant leadership, not just locally, but potentially uh, internationally as well.
1: Ivan, mean, I, I, forgive me for being political, uh, but that's what I do. Uh, and uh, five or six years, short-term, I think amazing things can be done. I, in five or six months, we're going to have a midterm election. And right now, there are enormous pressures uh, on the White House, on the President, on Democrats in Congress. The Republicans are arguing that the high gas prices are a function of hostility to oil and gas. Uh, the Europeans are saying, as I said earlier, they need oil and gas, and the Republicans are pushing that argument. How do you navigate your way through this without doing some real damage to these efforts? Long, longer term, the five or six year efforts to achieve real progress on climate.
0: Before I started covering energy, I covered government and politics. Right,
1: I know that. That's why I asked.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and a good part of that was covering the Maryland General Assembly, and there was a senator there um, named Barbara Hoffman, and she said, "Ivan." Been- This is government and politics. And if you don't like the politics, get out the government. (laughs) Now, the problem with that, related to your question, is the tensions and the challenges that the government leaders have from all of the different quarters. You have uh, the environmental community that's pushing for the clean energy piece. You have climate change that's pulling everyone in the direction of, you know, we've got to deal with the the worsening of natural disasters. You have the unions that are players in this who say, well, look, um, you want to go from a natural gas plant that uh, employs 60, 100 people. Uh, You want to eliminate, in California's case, the last nuclear plant. Um, Nuclear plants employ hundreds of people to a solar farm that after it's built is a guy with a squeegee. So you've got the union pressures, you've got uh, the decision that was made in regard to natural gas, that this is going to be the bridge fuel. So that decision, just like all of the other decisions that we're grappling with, um, uh, the fact that we have combustion engines, and, and we're looking at electric vehicles is not a new question. It's a hundred year old question. Folks just need to go down to the Peterson Museum on Wilshire and see the electric vehicle and the home electric vehicle charger that existed a hundred years ago. We made the decision that gasoline was going to be the fuel that powered our transportation. We made the decision in weaning off of coal that natural gas would be our fuel to bridge us to a clean energy future. So you've got the natural gas players who are saying, well, this is what you did for us. So now you're trying to take that away in the name of clean energy. You have the unions arguing, you have the environmental, you have all of these different pressures pulling on a president, on a on a, a Congress, on state legislatures, on governors, and people are having difficulty doing what it is that they believe may or may not be right and true.
3: So let's say that there's a massacre in the election in in November uh, for um, you know the let's say the pro environmental groups in 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 Washington. Let's just posit that that might happen, right? I think we will turn um, for progress back to local efforts, and I'll you know I'll just talk about our organization as as an example. Um, we're a locally operated, locally governed, uh, nonprofit electricity provider. Um, we have a million customers, 32 communities across Los Angeles and Ventura counties. Very um, diverse groups, diverse political views on the board of directors who are all local government officials, all local city council people um, who are very, very attentive to, to what their, their communities want. Um, Republicans, Democrats declined to state, aggressive declined to state, um, and but they all are unified in understanding that the impacts of climate change have hurt their communities locally. And it's no different than, I think, Miami, where they've outlawed the use of word climate change while they're spending tens of billions of dollars to shore up Miami. Even though they won't say the word, they will take action. So I think – and what has happened in our organization is these local leaders have said we're going to supply our communities with 100% renewable energy. So we – in four years, we've become the largest supplier of 100% renewable energy in the country based on decisions by local city council people. Um, and that is powerful. It gives me hope. To, and it happened right through the Trump presidency. And that, 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 that happened. And I, so I'm, I, you know, maybe I'm living in a California bubble. Maybe I'm living in a Los Angeles Ventura County bubble, but I do think that um, people across the country at, on this issue are demanding action and that will bubble up from the local level. If, if, if the federal government sort of gets out of the business.
1: So what do you make of the polling recent polling in the state that shows that statewide, Voters think climate is only the sixth most important issue that we have to decide. I mean, it's an existential issue, I think most of us here believe. It involves the future of the planet. But right now, people seem much more focused on other issues. How do you bring them around to focus on that?
4: I don't think that is new. I think it's Earth Day. Happy Earth Day, everyone. And we're still struggling to make environment, climate justice issues relevant. Because for so many people, first campaign the rent or having a job or healthcare. I mean, how many people we still on un- uninsured? Uh, you know, and, and so it's hard. We just went through something so incredible together, the pandemic. We quarantined together, we fought up about wearing masks or not wearing them. And we're still kind of in the mix of coming out of that period in history that we didn't really have precedent and so making you know it's, it's a very different conversation for people that have lost their homes for through fires wildfires than for people that maybe are not that don't see climate issues or environmental issues so tangible to them so for example right now i i read in the paper very recently that for mayors you know we're we're in a mayoral. Uh, election this year here in Los Angeles, and they don't even have their environmental agenda in their websites. So I think we're really, really back to the beginning again, and where we have to scream and kick, and and you know, and and demand and show up and do all these die-ins and all these things that we a lot of us did in the nineties and the two thousands to make this issue relevant. The difference is now that there is a different consciousness that we know that we're headed there, that this might not be in the forefront, but we know that this is important and this is making us lose money, lose lives that is, is hindering us from being more innovative and more connected. And this is something that we have to, you know, we have to bring back to the forefront. And I hope that this earth day, every day should be Earth Day and we can really bring these issues back to the forefront of everyone's mind. Go ahead. Yeah, I I would
5: add to, I think, both of those concepts. I think one thing that we have to be a little bit careful of, it is absolutely true um, what Ted said about we will continue the efforts uh, despite what may happen at the federal level. And and when Ted says that, he means it because he lived that and he helped champion that. But I do want to just emphasize that What happens at the federal level does still matter so much to us, even in cities that are forward-thinking, that are looking to aggressively pursue uh, climate solutions and climate goals. And, And part of that is because when billions of dollars funnel into technologies, those mature more rapidly. Those bring down costs for local levels. And one concept that I think is not in folks' consciousness is that we're talking about funding an infrastructure transformation. And the way that we're going to fund it, business as usual, short of a significant amount of state and federal dollars, the way that we're going to fund that is with electricity rates. And that is extraordinarily regressive. And that's not to say that's not the way to do it, but in under business as usual, unless we inform policymakers that to fund billions of dollars of infrastructure transformation with electricity rates means the poorest folks in the city, the poorest folks in the states will have an undue burden on them to fund that. And so while it is, I do think it's absolutely true because we've seen it, that things will continue, the movement will continue. What happens at the federal level makes a huge difference in making sure that this can be done affordably and that technologies can, can rapidly mature because there are a lot of emerging technologies that we will need in order to do this successfully. So I just wanted to add on to that. And I think the last thing that I'll say is maybe, and, and I'm, I'm getting out of my lane. So I'm going to keep this really, really uh, short and sweet. Maybe part of the, the lack of this being in the forefront of people's consciousness is when we set goals for 100% renewable energy and 100% carbon free. Maybe that makes folks feel like the job's done, but the job's just starting. That is the first piece of what needs to happen. There's a lot of things, not just on the implementation side, but on the policy side uh to bring down the barriers and to mitigate risk. So maybe, and I'm just speculating again. This is not my lane, so take it with a grain of salt. But maybe that contributes to the folks not feeling like this is at the forefront because it, maybe there's a, a feeling that the the job is done or 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 we're on our way, and and that's not the reality at all.
1: I'm talking a minute about the federal government and then the local local governments. But Ivan, I'm going to let you weigh in on this. Uh,
0: as I was listening to everyone, I, I thought about and and the, your question. It was on the celebration of the million solar roofs. Former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, he said, listen, the problem is, and you can give it the weight that it you feel it deserves, but he said the problem is the messaging. When you talk about climate change, it's hard for people to get a concrete vision of something. But he's in his words, he said, but if you say pollution, everybody gets pollution. So the challenge ends up becoming how do you deliver messaging that raises the those poll numbers to something uh, more significant than than sixth, fifth, sixth place? Because when you look at a variety, again, of the political issues, while the general public may hate some of the just talking points, those are the things that ends up driving the, the, the direction of the policy and, and the overall discourse. So if, if, if you have one group of people breaking down the, uh, uh, all of the scientific elements of what is driving us to have worsening wildfires and uh, a winter storm that grips the entire state of Texas, or Hurricane Ida shutting down all the electricity in New Orleans and uh, giving us the chapter and verse of the science, you're, people are going to tune out. It's a hard thing to to get the general public on board with a message that is complex. So on the other side of it, you have the utility companies that say, well, um, renewable energy distributed generation in particular hurts the poor and the low income now whether that's true or not uh, is another subject of debate but the messaging has this enormous impact on the discourse and and policy
1: well that's why i think you have to put this in a political context and you can't just say here's what we would like to do you have to talk about how we get it done and i think states and local states and localities can do it private companies can do it And there may be some hope, uh, according to White House Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy today, that Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who may be the most powerful senator from West Virginia ever, we always thought Senator Bob Byrd was, that he's the critical 50th vote in the Senate. He may be on board with the climate provisions of the Build Back Better bill and that would constitute the largest involvement investment in clean energy by the federal government ever by any government ever how much difference would that make
3: from my perspective it would make a lot of difference tremendous amount of difference um you know i when i said uh, we're going to do this even with or without the federal government i didn't mean that the federal government couldn't have a big impact and it, what what some provisions of that that bill would do would from from my perspective of trying to move quickly is um are two things one is it would bring a massive investment in r&d um to uh try to bring to commercialization a whole new set of technologies for the things that are most acute on the grid right now which is how do we store energy um you know we have really right now kind of two technologies one that's uh, you know, decades and decades old where we pump storage and pump water up and down. And then we have a relatively newer one lithium ion batteries, but, you know, to have the whole electricity grid transformation sort of bound up in one or two or maybe three green hydrogen technologies is it's, it's not enough. So that would be one area where a uh, big, big improvement. And then the other thing would be to Jason's point about cost. So there are provisions in there that would lower the cost of us as a, as a, as an electricity provider, lower the cost of procurement and lowering the cost of procurement lowers rates. I mean, there's a direct correlation between how much we have to spend to get energy and how much we charge for energy. And if we can do anything, um, through tax credits, through incentives to lower the cost for large scale, um, providers of, of, of renewable low carbon energy, um, that's going to have a direct impact on rates and not eliminate the regressiveness of electricity rates, but certainly uh, mitigate some of it. You should
4: be I want right. to say it's, it's, it's no green new deal, but the build back better is definitely, is, is going to be an incredible support also because it's not just certainly California working on these goals and pricing ourselves to be such great environmental leaders, but this is going to force every state in the United States to also look at how they can modernize their grid, how they can bring more renewable energy, more electrical vehicle infrastructure. Again, I want to return to the, the conversation of jobs. It's super important that we have a pathway to good jobs for those people that are affected by climate change. And imagine what's going to happen if the Build Back Better passes in the Midwest how this is going to transform and, and how this is gonna bring them up to speed to a lot of other states that are ahead of the game when it comes to renewable energy. I you know we are in the phase of decarbonizing the grid, electrifying everything, finding ways to have, you know, new buildings be full electric and not have any fossil fuel infrastructure. But I wanna remind I wanna remind everyone that the issue of munching that we have today It's because we we still have a a huge influence of the fossil fuel industry in our political system. They still put people in place. They still support certain candidates to get to office, and and this is why we we have sometimes these battlefields of policymakers that can't get things done because we have a huge industry behind the other you know, side of, of things, uh, pushing for something that is not the best for us and for, for the environment.
0: Well, and, the, and there were two things that were raised. I think Jason mentioned rates and Ted mentioned that what we build, you know, these are dri- drivers in, the, in terms of cost. So if you take those two elements together, one of, the, one of the major challenges that we have, no matter how much money gets put in a bill, is what are we incentivizing the utility companies, the energy industry to actually do? Right now we incentivize them to build and that's where they make their money. And in fact, a lot of the utilities now, uh, they really like to yell at me uh, about saying that they make money, uh, particularly in California, off of the sale of electrons. Though I will note that uh, without us using kilowatts, Then uh, they don't have any revenue. So, but that, but I'll I'll leave that one alone. They describe themselves now as construction companies. So, if we are just going to keep building, then the question is, you know, how much is that going to ultimately cost, and how much can the ratepayers bear? Because if we're 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 still going to be relying on natural gas. I mean, no matter how much uh, the the effort is to wean ourselves for. The the short term, we're dealing with natural gas. And if those prices continue to fluctuate or particularly go up, and given the dynamics that we're dealing with with Ukraine and the needs of Europe, that's going to be a factor. So we've got that pressure on rates and we have the building pressure on rates. So unless along with all of the money, there is a change in the incentive for the utilities and the energy companies to do something different. We're going to have some challenges.
5: So, Richard, how do you describe how do we fix it?
3: Serious. Playful. Open-minded. Argumentative. Liberal-leaning.
5: Libertarian.
3: Oh, we don't always have the same politics. But we do agree on this. For every problem, there ought to be a solution. A smart solution. We talk
5: solutions on how do we fix it with Jim Meggs and Richard Davies.
1: How do we
0: fix it?
1: You have all mentioned electric vehicles in one way or another, and I have kind of three questions about them. First of all, do we think consumers are really ready to junk their internal combustion engines? Uh, Number two, How do we deal with the equity issue that there are a lot of people who can't afford to buy an electric car? And number three, if you don't actually make the electrical grid renewable and you have electric vehicles and they're in effect being powered by coal or oil and gas, have you, have you achieved anything?
3: I love this question because, um, I'll use my own, my own experiences as, as an example. Um, uh our consumers um excited so um if you've never driven an electric vehicle you should go drive one it's really fun um uh because you step on the accelerator you don't step on the gas anymore you step on the accelerator um and it's this you know 100% torque like right away um but but on February 1st, it cost me $12 to fill up my electric vehicle. On March 1st, it cost me $12 to fill up my electric vehicle. On April 1st, it cost me $12 to fill up my electric vehicle. The affordability on the operations and the fueling, um, I think, can really um, sort of get a lot more people into accepting at least going to try Electric vehicle. So that's one. Second, um, people can't afford the vehicle in the first place. So we now have a system in place um, of incentives both in DWP territory as well as our territory, of um, providing rebates for used vehicles. And one of the things that I think is a real um, sort of local stimulus for market is to the extent that we could start stimulating a market for used electric vehicles, um, we lower the price point, but we also sort of start getting more demand out there in the in the economy. And the last thing is when I, pl- when I paid that $12 to fill up my electric vehicle, I f- fueled it with 100% renewable energy. Um provided by Clean Power Alliance. So um I think it's a it's a myth that um we actually that there's this um dirty grid out there that we're that somehow the EVs aren't aren't uh, pulling their weight in terms of um climate reduction.
1: But if you live in Illinois and you have an electric vehicle and you charge it, you're probably gonna be charging it from a coal fired station. For, for the foreseeable, for foreseeable for the future, case. for a while.
5: Yeah, so uh, I think a lot of people understand electric vehicles and, and they're really important. And I especially right now, I'm sure we all know somebody who owns an extraordinarily expensive gas vehicle that's complaining about gas prices and they have a choice and that's the bottom line. But you also see people with electric vehicles saying, you know, oh, if you're complaining about gas prices, go buy an electric vehicle. It's absolutely not that simple. People cannot, not, not especially in Los Angeles and across this state, A lot of people cannot afford electric vehicles, and even if they can, they don't have access to charging. And so utilities have to address that. We're trying to address that. We have um, used EV rebates. We also have incentives for chargers, but we also have an increased incentive for chargers in disadvantaged communities because we know that – you often hear, chicken or egg, do we install the charging now? This is not a chicken or egg problem. We have to have electric vehicles not just to decarbonize the transportation sector – but it's, it, it is what makes the transition of a, a clean electric grid affordable. I'll say that a different way. If we don't see electrification the way that we need it to, to happen, both on the building side and then on the transportation side, we cannot transform our electric grid affordably. So we need to see that fuel switching from gasoline vehicles uh, and you know, gas you know, stovetops and, and all of that to electrification in order to make this uh, affordable. Electric uh, utilities will play a really, really significant role in that. And, and I think our success in this relies on us doing this equitably. We're not going to get broad support for this if the, the richest in the state and the richest in the city are the only ones who can uh, afford to do this. Uh, and, and so this comes back to equity, and it comes back to our success relies on doing this equitably because what we're trying to do is set an example, and we're not setting a good example. We're setting a cautionary tale if we do this in a way that's that's not equitable, I, I think I'll just kind of complete this thought to say, the importance is not just on the carbon reduction side. The vast majority of the local air quality impacts um, will be mitigated or will be reduced uh, with the electrification of, especially the light uh, the, the light duty vehicles. It is so important, not just for carbon reductions, but for local air quality as well.
0: We we did some reporting on what were some of the motivating factors of people who who uh, were buying electric vehicles, particularly in the zip codes in the state um, with the highest number of, of electric vehicles. The, interestingly enough, while Los Angeles has on a whole, a lot of EVs, the individual zip codes did not make the top 20. They were in the Bay area. And they were in the San Diego area. So we went to San Diego and we talked to the folks who were buying EVs. Yes, there are the those who are environmentally conscious, many of them early adopters. But many of them said, I bought a Tesla because it's cool and it's fast. The messaging, again, became the driver. And that's uh, no fine, by the
1: way, if that's how they get to the electric vehicle, that's fine.
0: Sure, but, but, but it, the question becomes the, about the messaging. I mean, if and and then also the affordability, because when we were making the switch from incandescent bulbs to to LEDs uh, to to um, uh, compact fluorescents and then LEDs, there were a lot of people who looked at, who went to you know the hardware store and uh, they said, well, the incandescent bulb is you know a buck, and the the compact fluorescent is five, and the LED is ten or twelve. They're thinking about that's my milk and that's my bread. So when you start looking at the price of EVs, which was another component of what we were reporting on, they were still too high for a lot of people.
4: Glad that you're asking this question because at the beginning of the pandemic, I got rid of my car. I work from home and, you know, we were not supposed to be out there exploring in the world. So, you know, I just got rid of my car. So I have been without owning a car now We have been in this pandemic two years so, you know, as I see that kind of the pandemic is a thing of the past, um, I started looking into, well, what's the kind of car that I, that I want to get? And of course, it's going to have to be an energy efficient, you know, vehicle. But here is the kicker. I'm a renter. 70%, over 70% of the people in Los Angeles at least are renters. So how are we going to charge our cars? You know, and I live in a home right now. And the landlord can be cool about me putting a charging station there. Great. But what if I move? And if in the new building they don't have a charging station, who do I call? How do I charge my car? So here is this is This is number one for maybe the younger generation that can afford to buy an electrical or a hybrid electric vehicle. The second part is that a lot of folks out there that are low income, this is not in their radar. They don't think it's cool they don't even know you know is 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 a is a very intangible thing and and i i applaud the fact that we have rebates for used vehicles because that's going to help more people penetrate the ev market but i don't know if it's going to be enough i think we're going to have to be very aggressive if we are serious about getting everyone an ev car and i mean we see in california that after 2035, we're not going to be selling any more gas power cars. So I, I agree with, uh, Jason that we need to figure out how we're going to make infrastructure accessible for everyone. And right now it's is, is again, it's really hard. And the same is happening with solar. Like if you are a renter and you know, at, at DWP, we have shared solar, you know, we have solar for renters programs now, but How do I fold my solar panel and bring it with me to my next, you know, location? Is is that going to happen one day? Are we going to have that type of technology? But, you know, in in this conversation about EV, the other piece is, what about people that have to travel long distances? There's a lot of people that commute to Los Angeles because they can't afford to live in LA. So housing affordability becomes a thing when it comes to climate change you know, and the or, uh, transit-oriented communities and, and and those things. But, you know, think about rural areas. And as a nature lover, I go explore, backpacking, you know, I do all those crazy things out there in nature. And And how do I get to a mountain in my electric vehicle and hope for the best to return me home? So, you know, so there's a lot of nuances that we still have to figure out and 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 I agree that it's not a chicken and an egg. We just have to tackle all of it kind of together.
3: Let, let me tell. Let me just say one quick story about the chicken and egg thing because um uh, uh, the point about getting the chargers out there is is really 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 important and um and there's an incredible demand out there. Uh, on April 5th, we put out twenty three million dollars in. EV charger incentive rebates released a new program, $23 million. That money was reserved in three hours, three hours, $23 million got sucked up by people who want to install EV chargers. These are not home EV chargers. These are for workplace for um, renters, for multifamily buildings, uh, uh, shopping centers. We could spend, millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars and we're gonna have to to make uh, the EV transition.
1: Yeah my only EV story is I was taking an Uber to USC one day just before the pandemic and I was the Uber driver, believe it or not, and it wasn't an Uber black, it was a regular Uber. He had a Tesla and he was paying for the Tesla by driving for Uber. And we're coming down the freeway, the the what I used to call the Santa Monica freeway, because I lived in Los Angeles a long time ago. Uh, And he suddenly takes his hands off the steering wheel and says, watch, the car can drive itself. It was the most terrifying (laughs) minute and a half I've ever had. Uh, I want to get to audience questions, but I want to throw out one quick last question and just go down. And it's about a big challenge and about something that would require really aggressive action. Uh, LA is committed to be carbon-free by 2035. Do you think that's possible, especially when all the focus now is on homelessness and crime? And, and as you pointed out, the, the, the mayoral platforms don't even yet have a climate section. So do you think it's possible to get there by 2035?
5: Politically possible. I should probably uh, address this question. I was, I was going to... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, it's, recognizing it's a lightning round, I'll do my, my best to answer a really long question with a short answer. We did a study. We spent four years. We brought in the National Renewable Energy Lab, the top scientists in the world to figure out how to do that, to answer that question. Um, and we found out that it is technically possible. It is technically achievable to do it not just by 2045, as the state has said. It is possible to do it by 2035. That is not the end of the story. The end of the story is that there still is work to be done on the infrastructure side, on the technology side, on the equity side, and on the policy side. Because if we don't do this in a way that's reliable, that's equitable, that's affordable, and in a way that that maintains and creates well-paying jobs, L.A. will not lead the state and will not lead the country. We will be a cautionary tale. So it is possible to do this. But we need more action to make sure that we can build infrastructure quickly. And that's, you know, we spent a lot of time at the state talking to legislators saying we need to figure out how to build transmission faster. We need to figure out how to get more federal dollars and more state dollars to be able to buy down the cost and make sure that this is equitable. Um, And the last thing that I'll say is the study said, you know, you can do this equitably, but it really needs to have intentionally designed policies and programs. Um, and so what we did in response to that is we kicked off what's called the LA 100 equity strategies. And it's a recognition that we don't know what equity means to our community and that we have the humility to bring in community-based organizations to help identify what that means to them. How do they have access to programs, to policies, to EVs, to charging, and all of that. Um, and it's something that, you know, I'll, I'll wrap it up by saying yes, there's a lot of work to do to bring down some of those those risks and those barriers uh, that, in some cases, are are within our control, within the utilities' control. In other cases, it's it's up to policymakers and others to to bring down those barriers.
3: All uh, having having worked for the current mayor in sustainability, I think uh, L.A. has been blessed with having a mayor who was a big environmental champion uh, before he became mayor, and his remain true to that. It hasn't been a fad for him. Um, I'm not sure we're going to have the same kind of leadership in the mayor's office, regardless of who wins. Um, I, I I hope I'm wrong, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and so what I would say is uh, one of the big things to pay attention to in the upcoming, uh, election is a city council. Um, the city council was able to follow the mayor here. But if you're looking for uh, who to vote for, um, vote for city council people who are going to lead because we may not have that same kind of leadership in the mayor's office.
1: Okay. We're really into politics now, so I think it's time uh, that we go to some Q&A. First, let's do a Zoom question, and then we'll do the audience. A question from Diane Wallace on Zoom related to
3: electric vehicles. How can individual people with electric vehicles and solar and storage drive sustainability when the CPUC makes decisions that eliminate the benefits of installing solar
5: storage in electric vehicles? I'm happy to touch on that from L.A.'s perspective. I, I will say that we're not uh, subject to the, the CPUC, the California Public Utilities Commission. So when it comes to creating programs and when it comes to creating opportunities for public, uh, the public to participate, we have set up a, a wide array of uh, community solar programs, solar programs, EV rebates, um, that have tried to touch all of the different segments across the, 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 the city. But we have a lot of work to do. And I talked about bringing in uh, our equity strategies efforts to identify how to actually reach the communities, how to overcome some of the barriers that we don't understand. So we don't have that capability, and we have to know that we don't have that capability. Um, and then I think I'll just wrap it up to say we're governed by uh, our city council and our appointed board. Um, folks in Los Angeles have the ability, have the access and have the ability to shape what our future looks like, and and that's very different from the rest of California.
1: Unless anybody else wants to comment on that, let's go to questions from the audience.
5: Hi, Stephen Hubbard, graduate of the
1: Sol Price School. This is for Ivan. Uh, When you look at the rotary rigs that are in operation, the speed up this time around after the drop-off versus 2016 is only about half as fast. And so I know it's not lost on the oil industry that if they're slow to build production back up, the prices will go up. And I'm sure there's someone has lots of spreadsheets on the cost-benefit ratio of a delayed action. And so the question is, do you know whether this is sort of a strategy or is just a result of the pandemic and it's much harder this time versus the previous time? Thank you. Ivan, I think you got to do this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, your question goes to a technical side that uh, I'm. I'm half of a uh, of a coin. Um, my colleague Cliff Krause is the the oil, natural gas, and coal uh, fuel side of of that coin, and uh, I'm the grid and and uh, and renewables. Um, you know th- that said, I mean you have a you have a lot of complexities in all of these pieces, where you have a reliance on fossil fuels, both on the side of of the on the electricity side, and then obviously, transportation is driven by it. So if you when you calculate the fact that the, the administration has said to um, the oil and gas industry, we want you to produce more, there's a realization that There is a need. That was before we even really started to engage uh, with the issues of Ukraine. Ramping back up is always more expensive. But how do you meet all of the dynamics that we're dealing with? Because in as much as a lot of the things that we've already talked about uh, in terms of the energy transition, there's a, a big reality about the time element. And some of that is starting to come to the fore. The realization that some of the goals and the targets that were set are going to be hard to reach. Take, for instance, uh, you know, on the renewable side, we have an emphasis on offshore wind when we don't have a boat. So how are we going to put all these turbines in the water? So there's, there's a challenge. You have the utilities fighting against, um, re- uh, rooftop solar. So where is all of this energy to meet? they have half the vehicles by 2030 electric how are we going to get there when the distribution system doesn't isn't equipped for the kind of transition that we're talking about so in in short you're having to ramp up and those costs ramp, starting anything again getting things back up is going to cost something but there's part of the reason why that's happening is there's a realization that there are some challenges with the time frame
1: Ibrahim, why don't you come up here because she has a question and then we'll come back to you.
5: Hello. I'm Annika. Thank you guys so much for coming today. Um, I just have a question about the power grid and it handling the transition to more electric vehicles. In my class the other day, we were talking about how, like, if everyone were to transition to electric vehicles, the power grid Couldn't handle that. So, what's kind of happening on that side of things? What level is it at right now? How, like, how many people can really be having electric vehicles and and going forward? How what what's being done so that that transition can be successful? I'd like to answer that question if I can. That is an extraordinarily important question because it's not just about um, again decarbonizing the power grid. The power grid will enable the successful or the unsuccessful transition to electric vehicles. And so we need to make sure our distribution grid can power electric vehicles when folks are trying to charge. So today, over the last maybe 20 years, we have built about two stations, stations that essentially provide power to homes and businesses and that sort of thing. And if you drive across Los Angeles, you might see a building that's kind of like an art deco style uh, building. And it's not because our architects like that style. It's because they were built back when that was the architecture. (laughs) And so when you look at the last 20 years, I think we've built two of those stations. We have to build dozens in the next 20 years. That sounds like it's just an infrastructure challenge. It's not, because when we try to build something, the community says, what are you building that for? Why aren't you uh, you know, doing other things? The reality is we need to build that infrastructure, but we also need to have significant local solar, local storage. And the reality is that electric vehicles will actually help integrate a lot of that uh, renewable energy as well. So it's a, it's a excellent question, and the success of the EV industry will rely on us doing our part to make sure that infrastructure is there.
3: I'll just pile on here and, and draw an analogy. Everybody wants the low carbon grid, just like everybody wants uh, housing to be affordable. And if we want that low carbon grid, we're going to have to build lots of new stuff. And if we want housing to be affordable, we're going to have to build lots of new stuff. And, um, that's, I think, the one of the fundamental more political dilemmas that we have in California right now around this whole issue of environmental protection, affordability, and, um,
4: climate change. Something important. Uh, I was hoping Jason will mention this is the time of use, meaning, you know, during the day, you're probably going to drive your electrical vehicle to work whatever fashion that is going to happen now. And you're going to come back home and charge your car. So now the, the stress to the grid or, or the demand to the green is, the grid is changing. It used to be a certain curve and now is the curve is changing. And actually with the study with NREL, with the National Renewable Lab, that became a huge kind of component on how we got to 100% renewables by 2035. Because also the, and now even with the pandemic, because understanding that people maybe are just going to not commute at all or are going to commute in different times. So there's so many variables to answering, you know, your question. And again, I, I like to come back to the local generation. How are we going to be able to have local distributed generation in people's neighborhoods, hospitals, homes, supermarkets, churches? So that when people everywhere they go, they have an opportunity to charge their car. So it doesn't constrain the grid. at at a certain time of the day.
1: Let's see if we can do this quickly. Yes.
5: Hello, my name is Connor Castillo. First off, I actually had a, or I was like thinking about the same question as Annika. We're in the same class. But anyways, my other question is, you were mentioning that um, our mayoral candidates currently don't have any sort of environmental issues on their platforms. So whenever we have, these elected officials not really standing for these issues that we care about. Um, how would you recommend that students sort of collectively organize and sort of stand up for these issues when even our own elected officials won't?
1: Now we really are into politics. Go ahead. <laughs> I want to make a
3: shout out for traditional media here. Um, the LA times ran as editorial said, where's all the environmental platforms. And um, just in the last week, like you saw them, the, the dominoes fall, so um, we're, we're, we got we got four of the five major candidates uh, put out environmental platforms in uh, by now so so um, go editorials in traditional media um, uh, but um, uh, be, beyond that, um, I do actually you know I go to city council meeting like local city council meetings outside of LA quite a bit people at that local level actually just like listen to regular folks. We had the city, I'll, I'll call out the city of Redondo beach recently voted to through clean power lines to go to hundred percent renewable energy. The, dis- the swing vote, the deciding vote was persuaded by a um, 600 student um, online petition from Redondo union high school for that. And, and, you know, two of the, of the, folks cited that as the reason that they were voting for this. Um, So I think there's a a tremendous amount, again, at the very local political level, um, a tremendous amount of uh, opportunity for, you know, regular folks, students to go out there and, and make a difference.
4: I was not born, you know, in like politics or anything like that. But I have to say that in 2020, if, you know, I come, I come from the world of community organizing. I work for the Sierra Club. I have worked with a lot of different organizations locally and nationally. So get involved with your local organization. I came here to USC when I ran for office in 2020 and I see some of the students that supported my campaign. You guys went and door knocked with me and we talked about my environmental agenda and it was actually the, the environmental club here. Who went every weekend and was out there making phone calls and knocking on doors for me. And that is so extremely important that we get good people to the city council, to the mayor, to president, to, to, you know, to also carry on these, um, this message about e- energy, renewable energy, equity, accessibility, and also that we make sure that we ourselves are doing everything we can to also empower ourselves and work, tell our stories, and work with other people around these issues to make them relevant.
1: Okay, I think we're going to have to wind up. I want to thank an absolutely extraordinary group of people on this panel. I tried to ask some provocative, and as I suggested earlier, maybe unpopular questions with some folks, but I think we learned a lot. Uh, I also want to thank Joe Ar- Arvi and the Wrigley Institute. Uh, we've done this now three years in a row, and we'll do it again next year. And finally, I have to single out Kami Akavan, our executive director, Erica Maldonado, who did so much work on this, Christy Plaza, who did a great job, Ben, who is our uh, link to Zoom. We didn't have much time to do Zoom questions. And Nicole Pompilio. I mean, a lot of people put a lot of work into this, both at the Center for the Political Future and at the Wrigley Institute. So thanks a lot, and we'll see you next year, if not on Earth Day in Earth Week or Earth Month. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever
2: you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Future. that's Future. Follow us on Facebook and
1: YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs.